This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. We are in 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're going to pick up in verse 9. Notice at the end of verse 8, as we look at verse 9, but look at the end of verse 8 if you would. Notice that the punctuation there is a colon, at least in my Bible it is. Have you ever considered the use of punctuation in the Bible? For example, you'll notice that in a King James Version of the Bible, there's no quotation marks. This is because the uniform use of quotation marks did not become standardized in our English language until sometime in the 19th century. And then when the King James Bible was translated, the standard treatise on English grammar and syntax was George Puttenham's The Art of English Posy. Written in 1589. Of course, the King James Version was first published in 1611, but by the time the King James was republished in 1769, the preeminent authority seems to have been Robert Montreux's True and Genuine Art of Pointing, which was published in 1704. So these were the standards for punctuation in the English language. I think Montre's instructions on English punctuation would be the most helpful for us even as we study the Bible. You might not much have given such much thought to punctuation in the Bible, uh, but I would, definitely, I would definitely not say the punctuation is inspired, uh, but I do think the translators endeavored to use punctuation so as not to add or detract from the translation. After all, punctuation is important to conveying a message, right? Hey, take for example this. We can either eat grandma, or we can eat with grandma. Grandma, I'm sure, has a vote on that. As the saying goes, punctuation saves lives. I'd encourage you in your Bible study to consider what the punctuation in the sacred text can do to assist you in your study. Because our Bibles do have periods and commas, semicolons, colons, and we should take the punctuation seriously. Don't rush through the reading of Scripture. Pause where you see a period. Pause for a slightly shorter time for a comma. And pause for a colon and a semicolon. But have you ever asked, what is the difference between a colon and a semicolon in the Scripture? Well, a semicolon in the Bible means exactly as it does today. It is mostly used to separate two independent sentence parts that are related in meaning, but they're two complete thoughts. Here's a fun fact. In Greek, the semicolon is what? It's the equivalent to our question mark in English. Hey, but we're not reading our Bibles in Greek this evening, so a semicolon is that exactly what it is, an English semicolon. Now, Montrate describes the semicolon as this. This is what he says. The semicolon, or the comus magus, if you ever want to impress anybody, don't just call it a semicolon. Call it a comma magus. He says, it is the noter mark for a longer pause, a halt or delay in utterance than that for a comma. But colons are a little different. And we can see an example of how they are used here in 1 Peter. Colons in English are used typically to mark an introduction. They are used to let a reader know that what follows the colon has been pointed to or described by what precedes the colon. For example, I could say... I love to eat the following foods, ice cream, 
moon pies, and angel food cake. If you would read that sentence on paper, it would read like this. I love to eat the following foods. Colon, ice cream, moon pies, and angel food cake. As you read it, the colon signifies that I'm about to describe foods that I love to eat. So as you read, you do not have to sit on the edge of your seat in complete wonderment as to what foods Tavis likes to eat. I'm about to tell you. The colon's telling you I'm about to tell you. The colon indicates you are about to receive the blessing of knowledge of what I like to eat. But in running prose, such as we encounter in books and magazines, articles and the like, colons are mostly used to introduce a clause or a phrase that explains or illustrates, amplifies, or even restates what precedes them. So this is very similar in how it is used in our Bibles, but not exactly. Let me go back to Montre's description of the colon. For colons, Montre says this. In my notes here, I have a colon. It says this, all right? The colon requires a pause somewhat longer than after a semicolon. But Montreux does not really tell us why we're pausing somewhat longer. Still, the use of colons in the English Bible, especially the King James, since many modern versions have adapted the modern use of punctuation, in the use of the colon in the Bible does help us to see where we should pause and think that there is a substantial reason for this lengthened pause. The colon tells us to pause because a complete thought has been made, but there's still some more to say on that subject, about that thought. So you pause, think about what was just said, and then prepare to build another thought, though a complete thought in itself, but a thought that builds on what was already said. We're going to put building blocks together. That's what colons help us do. This is exactly what we see in verse 9. Verse 8 ends with a colon. So picking up in verse 9, might, you might think, why pick up in the middle of a sentence? Well, I'm not exactly. I'm picking up a new thought, but it does build on what we read in verse 8. As in all verses, the context before and following a verse is vital. But these verses, verse 9, can stand alone. If we were to take the entire sentence, if we call it that in our modern English, if you notice, if we were to not start and say, hey, I want to read the entire sentence, we'd have to go all the way back to verse 6 on this sentence. But for tonight, we're not going to do that. We're going to look at verse 9. We're going to start with verse 9. And enough talk about punctuation and grammar. Let's read it. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 9. Receiving the end of your faith. Now, verses 7 and 8 tell us that the end is the appearance of Jesus Christ. So when Jesus appears, we will receive the end of our faith. That will be the end of our faith. Why? Because our faith will be sight. So receiving the end of your faith, the appearance of Jesus Christ, even the salvation of your souls, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. Right, before I move on, look at verse 10 there. It says, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently. This is the first phrase that we're not going to spend much time here, but I just want to point out. This was a very cerebral process for these prophets. They were studying the word. 
This wasn't just intuition. This wasn't just something that they imagined or they thought of. There was rigorous study as they looked into the sacred text, searched diligently of the salvations that they inquired, searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. Look at verse 11 again. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things, which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven. And he kind of puts something in here that's interesting. He says, which things the angels desire to look into. Now, here is, what I wear, is where I want to spend our time this evening on this next thought. Look what Peter says in verse 13. Wherefore. Now, this word wherefore is also equivalent to our word therefore. Everything Peter has just said builds up to now what he's going to say now. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. That is a weird statement. Gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation or walk of life. Because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. And if ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth, every, judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. Dear Holy Father, I pray that you would bless the reading of your word, and I pray that this time would be profitable as we look at this passage of scripture. Be glorified in it, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen. 13 verses into Paul, Peter's epistle, we come to his first exhortation. And it's a strange one. Well, strange in that he uses language we might not ordinarily be accustomed to. He gives us an imperative, a command. He says, gird up the loins of your mind. What in the world is he telling us to do? In my first message in this, from this epistle, I said in first, that 1 Peter 1, verse 17, the phrase, pass the time of your sojourning here with fear, is the primary purpose of the book. It is to show believers, regardless of ethnicity, how to live in a world that hates them. Well, if that is the primary purpose of the book, I believe verse 13 provides us the foundation. Peter is going to build the framework for the moral religious life of the Christian. As you look through 1 Peter, this entire book is really about how to live the moral religious life. And so he establishes it here. You cannot have 1 Peter 1 verse 16 that says, Be ye holy in all manner of conversation without verse 13. You cannot pass the time of your sojourning here in fear without verse 13. You cannot get into chapter 2 and lay aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speaking and desire the sincere milk of the word without 
chapter 1, verse 13. We cannot abstain from fleshly lust in chapter 2, verse 11, without chapter 1, verse 13. We cannot even give an answer to every man of the hope that lies within us, as Peter tells us to do in chapter 3, verse 15, without chapter 1, verse 13. I truly believe that 1 Peter 1.13 is the foundation of this epistle, and that's the case I'm going to make this evening. Why is gird up the loins of your mind so important? And what is Peter trying to tell us? Now, we've already looked at punctuation, so let's keep the grammar lesson going this evening. And uh, now consider that this is a figure of speech that Peter is employing here. In this verse, Peter is using what we call a metaphor. A metaphor. In this case, it's a figurative expression taken from runners or other such as workers, workmen, wrestlers, warriors, who would take their long, loose, flowing robes, tie it into their belt around their waist so that they could run or fight or apply themselves to any business so they can prosecute their work without any hindrance. I've never tried it, but I've heard it's tough to run in a skirt, all right? And I shouldn't say that they wore skirts back then, but they did have long flowing robes. At least that's what the uh, pictures in uh, the flannel graph showed me. But the reality is we have words like this that tell us exactly what they mean, where they would take that and they would actually take their robes and make them look like a pair of pants or even shorts, and they would put it into their belt, and they'd be ready to fight, they'd be ready to work, they'd be ready to run. In antiquity, this was common. This was a common practice for men so that they would be ready for energetic action. 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 46, it's no metaphor, but it describes how Elijah actually did this when it says he girded up his loins and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. He was ready to run. In 1 Kings 18, 46, he was ready to go, ready to run. Now, in Job, twice God challenges Job. He says to Job, gird up your loins like a man. Insinuating, stand tall. We're going to have a pointed discussion. The point is, God was challenging Job to be ready for action because God was about to take him to task. He wanted Job to be ready. Throughout all of Peter's writings, he employs colorful figures of speech. And when he does, there is no ambiguity of what he means. And this I find fascinating because Peter was, historically, the Bible tells us no differently, was an uneducated fisherman. And yet, I think he probably knew a little bit more than we give him credit for. He has an ability to communicate, and he employs very colorful metaphors, extremely descriptive because of his artful addition of an adjective to draw out those metaphors. For example, we're not to just desire the word. We're to desire the sincere milk of the word. It's not just the heart of the virtuous woman, but the more descriptive the hidden man of the heart. He's almost poetic in the way he describes things. He says it's the hidden man of the heart. That's the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit. 
The elders are not just to seek a crown. He could have said, hey, you're going to get your crown. But he says they are to seek a crown of glory. Almost redundant, but yet it's not. A crown on the head is already glorious, right? When I'm at home and I put my crown on, I feel pretty regal. At one point, I tried to convince Kendall that um, when I got my master's degree, because when you get a doctor's degree, you're called doctor. You can see where I'm going to go with this. Uh, I said, I got a master's degree now. I think the proper title is master. <laughs> Didn't work. But we are to seek, <laughs> the elders are to seek a crown of glory when the chief shepherd shall appear. All of these are colorful metaphors. They're figures of speech that Peter employs to teach us truth. So we can see what action Peter means in this when he says, gird up the loins of your mind. I find it fascinating that Peter does not say, get ready, be ready, and guard your heart. Though there are many instances where we find that that truth is taught. He, he doesn't say, hey, be ready, be ready, and protect your soul. Though there are certainly times where we must protect the vulnerability of our soul. If you gain the whole world and lose your own soul, what does it profit? Though there are certainly times we do that. But Peter is not concerned with the soul or the heart. He specifically challenges the reader to gird up the loins of the mind. Now, you might say, ah, mind, heart, soul, they're all the same. I'm going to disagree with that. A mind, rather than the soul or heart, seems to bespeak of practical intelligence. Thus, in Galatians, when uh, the Galatians began to fall from uh, evangelical to Judaic religion, Paul calls them, you know what he says they are? They're senseless in Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. It is Peter's use of the word mind here that I find so helpful in establishing the foundation for the instruction he's going to give us throughout his letter. Now, in the New Testament, there are three Greek words that are translated into the English word mind. We tend to use one word, mind, to convey three different meanings that we would find in Greek. Now, the first word that we would find in the Greek is phreneo. And it most often refers to a person's understanding, their views, or their opinions. Now, you might recognize that Greek word in our English word, frenetic. Frenetic, which is a frantic or a frenzied person. Or someone who is, has their mind in disorder. Now, in Mark 8.33, when Jesus turned about and looked on his disciples, he rebuked Peter. And here's what he said, saying, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. That word there, savorest, is the word phreneo. Peter did not understand that the things were the things of God. His mind was disordered. Perhaps a better example, though, would be in Acts chapter 28, verse 22. When Paul was in Rome, the Jews there came to hear what he thought about this new sect called Christianity. It's a fascinating verse. Those Jewish elders, they come to him and they wanted to know what he thought. They wanted his opinion. 
They wanted his viewpoint. That word in Acts 28.22 is phreneo. So this Greek word for mind carries the idea of having an opinion on something. Similar to how we would say today, we are like-minded. We share the same opinion. A really beautiful example of this word in the Bible, though, is in Philippians chapter 2. As Christians, we are to be of one accord, of one mind. Or we are to have a shared opinion. And this opinion is to be in us as it was in Christ Jesus. Literally, we are to have the opinion, the perspective, the viewpoint of Jesus Christ in all we do. The second word in the New Testament that is translated mind is the Greek word nous. Now, this word is a little different than phreneo. While phreneo means having an opinion with the idea of really having an informed opinion, it's not just have an opinion, it's an informed opinion. We don't just have the mind of Christ because we want to have an opinion. We have his mind. We see things from his perspective. But it's an informed opinion based on experience. Nous is intuition. It's our idea of common sense. We see this use in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. As Christians, our minds are to be renewed to a reasoning that is not conformed to this world, but is transformed. We are to have sense as a Christian. So we have phreneo, it's opinion, and we have nous, intuition. And so we come to our third word, which is the word Peter uses in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. And this is perhaps, to me, the most important Greek word for the mind, at least for theological purposes. We find in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37, when Jesus told the rich young man, he said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. He used this word. This is the word dianoia, and it is a compound word that combines dia, which might be translated through, and the word we just saw, nous, which means mind, so it's through the mind. You say, why do you share all those Greek words? Because i got to keep up with Brother Hagbird, who kept saying Cote d'Ivoire. Did I say it? Cote d'Ivoire, you know. You did a good job. I mean, I was like, hey, I'm from Norfolk. Uh, and so, you know, we don't say anything fancy here. Uh, but, uh, but no, I got these Greek words. I'm just, you know, if I just say enough Greek words, you'll be like, wow. But I want you to see in this that this word dianoia is through the mind. Why is that important? Through the mind, with the, through being the means and the mind is the agent. This refers to the intellect, your ability to reason. This is not mere opinion, even a well-informed one. Or intuition, it's not just common sense. It is more academic. This word for mind holds the concept that all things flow through the mind. It is how we as humans were created in the image of God to be rational, thinking, reasonable persons. Let me illustrate it like this. I love it when children first learn to talk. I've shared some of these, but now we have a rule in our family that we don't correct our children's mispronunciations of words. We figure it will be a lot more fun for their peers to do that when they're in junior high. (laughs) We're pretty good model parents like that. (laughs) Seriously, we do like to hear their words. So we've had, and I've said some of these before, we've had Danilva for vanilla, Rice Christmas treats for Rice Krispie treats, And the most current one, when you say something to Titus and he likes it, he'll say, instead of thank you, he'll say, Hanks. 
Now, they are not really just mispronouncing words. They're making up words altogether. The scientific name for mispronouncing words is kakopi, which I didn't even bother to look up how to pronounce that. Because of all the words in the English language, the word that means you mispronounce words should certainly be a word you should be allowed to mispronounce with no judgment. Kikopi. But anyway, my youngest son has had his fair share of mispronounced words and made up words. But there's one thing he does to me that actually I find to be genius. I guess the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. But <laughs> it's genius. When he asks for something or to do something, he will follow it. He'll ask his question and then he'll say, or can he do something? He'll say, does that make sense? So it's be like this. Hey, Dad, let's go for ice cream. Does that make sense? <laughs> yes, son, yes, it does. <laughs> or sometimes he isn't asking, like, I want to go play outside. Does that make sense? But he usually only says it when he is trying to convince me or his mother of something. Now, why does he do this? Now, it could be because he thinks this is a means of negotiation and he just wants us to agree with what he wants. That could be it. It might be it. But we do have a strict policy in our home. We do not negotiate with terrorists. So I like to think, I like to think that he, in his simple way, is asking if I am processing through my brain what he is processing through his brain. I think it's that innocent. He wants me to see things as he sees things. He wants ice cream. Dad, you want to go get ice cream? Does that make sense? To him, he has thought this through, and it is a great idea. He isn't even trying to outwit me as much as he is trying to just find agreement with me. So when Peter tells us to gird up the loins of our minds, he is telling us, this is what he's saying, get on the same page as God. He is telling us to align ourselves with God's truth because that is where we must start before we can do anything else. We must gird up the loins of our mind. We are only going to understand truth if we start thinking about it. First things first, align with God's truth. We must do this. We must tether ourselves to objective truth. We must be compelled that that's where we, we're girded. Because what is, what, why are we girding up our loins of our mind? Because we're going to be ready for action. And Peter is about to tell us a lot of things in his epistle of things that we can do, we must do to live in this present world, to pass our time of sojourning here with fear. He's about to tell us a whole bunch of things to help us do that. But none of it will make sense if we're not on the same page as God. What's the upshot of this? Why is it important that we understand what Peter is saying when he tells us to gird up the loins of our mind? Maybe I'm overthinking this. Pun intended. After all, maybe this is just a cultural idiom that he's using. 
as Peter's trying to get his readers to just think, just think. Maybe that's all he's saying. Hey, just think. But I think it's more nuanced than that because it is through the mind. It is through the way we think that we process everything. It's what we know right from wrong. It's how we know truth from error. It comes through our mind. We do not want to be Christians who say, I just am led by my heart, my feelings. There is objective truth. So here is the upshot. The mind is what tethers us to objective truth. Objective truth is not something that is gathered by intuition or even by opinion or feeling. Truth is completely independent of who we are. You can agree with truth or you can deny it. It's still truth. Talk about thinking. I want to share a story with you. My first duty station was a base called Barstow, California. Marine Corps Logistics Base. I was with Marines. There's a lot that goes into how I got that first uh, assignment. And uh, I was a young guy, I, uh, single at the time. I actually met Kendall while I was out there. I'm very quick to say I did not meet her in Barstow because she does not want to be. She's not from Barstow. Nobody ever wants to say they're from Barstow. And so I met her while I was out there. So it, it turned out to be a great duty station. But one of the things I learned very quickly was on uh, leadership. Now, I'm going to say some terms that I, I'll try to interpret them for you because I don't want to speak too Navy jargon on you and, and lose you. Uh, the only couple people will understand because there's only so many of us that have intelligence, right? Right, Alan? Right? Yeah. So I had what's called an RP out there. Now, you say, what is an RP? An RP is a religious program specialist. It's a chaplain assistant. And I remember when I first met my RP, he, uh, he shows up, and I'm, gonna, I'm a Lieutenant JG. I'm salty. I mean, I've been promoted one time. And, uh, and so I, uh, and I'm going to be a good leader. And so I meet my RP, and, uh, and, uh, and I was going to, he was coming in. He was, I heard he was single, and I said, hey, I'll help. I'm, gonna, I'm not only just a good leader, I'm a servant leader. I was going to help him move his stuff. So I show up and, and move in, and, and I noticed, noticed something that very quickly, something was very odd about this gentleman. He had Winnie the Pooh posters all over his house. It's like, okay, all right. Um, weird, uh, but all right. Uh, and so, uh, you know, it, it came quickly. He was very eccentric. Uh, he, was, he, was a, he was a weird gentleman. But one time, I said to him, I said, look, you know, it's coming up on Thanksgiving. Here's what I'd like to do. It's Thanksgiving, and I would like to make sure that we have poinsettias in the chapel for all of our attendees that at the end, after our Christmas Eve service, everybody takes a poinsettia home. Now, we only had about, I don't know, maybe 30, 40 people in the chapel at that time. And so I said, you know, we don't need to give one to everyone. We'll give one to a family. But let's get 25 poinsettias. And I think that'll look nice. And, uh, and we had a fund that we could use to do this. And I said, I'd like you to go get these poinsettias. Now, in his tenure working for me, um, he, he actually went backwards in his rank uh, a couple times uh, because of, uh, of some things that uh, he failed to see from my perspective. So anyway, so, so here he is. He, he's, this is, I think, prior to him uh, moving backwards. But it's Thanksgiving, and 
thanks, I said, here's what I'd like you to do. I'd like for you to have everything out the Sunday after Thanksgiving. That's when we're going to have the chapel decorated. Our commanding officer's wife, she had just overhauled this manger scene that really looked nice, and we were going to put that out. We were going to be ready for Christmas. We were going to show the Marine Corps that we celebrate, celebrate Christmas in Barstow in the desert. So we had this all ready to go. That Sunday comes, and I say, hey, RP, where's the poinsettias? He said, oh, I forgot to get them. I said, okay, this week, get the poinsettias. Yes, sir, I'll get the poinsettias. That week comes and goes. At the end of the week, RP, have you gotten the poinsettias? No, I forgot. I forgot to get the poinsettias. RP, at this point, you only have one job. Get poinsettias. We go on like this, and finally, it's about time for our Christmas Eve service. Still hasn't gotten the point says. Now, one of the colonels on the base, his wife, they attended, and his wife, she came to me, and she says, hey, I'd like to donate some stuff to the chapel, and uh, I'd like to donate a couple poinsettias. I said, great, we'll, we'll use them. So she has these poinsettias that she brings in, and they are, they're nice size. I mean, they're big. And so they're out there. It's now... The Friday before, I forget what day Christmas Eve was on. I think it may have been a Saturday or Sunday. Anyway, it's that Friday before. And I said, RP, we don't have the poinsettias. I need you to go get the poinsettias. So he says, okay, I'll, go get, I'll do it now. I say, thank you. So he goes out, and he comes back a couple minutes later, and he says, I was not able to find 25 poinsettias. I'm like, you think the day before Christmas Eve you can't find that many poinsettias? No wonder. He says, I couldn't find them all at one spot, but I was able to piecemeal them. I got, you know, five over here at uh, Home Depot, and I got some at Walmart, and I got some over here at Lowe's. And I said, I said, I don't care how you got them, but you got them, right? Now, there was one caveat. The poinsettias had to be real. They had to be live because that was the only way we could use the funds that we were given. You could only use those funds for live flowers, okay? That's a rule. It was a rule. It was an unflinchingly rigid rule. I was not going to go to jail for buying fake flowers or fake poinsettias. So he goes out and he gets these. He comes back and he says, okay. He goes, sir, hey, I got the poinsettias, but what I did not realize is I couldn't find 25 of them. I could only get 23 of them. I said, that's okay. He says, good. He says, because I figured with the two that you already have, from the colonel's wife, that would give us 25. Well, that's defeating my purpose in giving. I'm not going to give away the, the gift, but okay, I got these poinsettias. We'll, we'll be all right. He leaves my office. I said, wait, 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 wait. RP, come here. The ones you bought are real, right? Oh, yes, sir. I said, good, because we cannot buy fake poinsettias. He's like, yeah, I know. I said, because the two that we have are fake, he looks at me, he goes, what? Then why have I been watering them for four weeks? I said, RP, I said, come with me. So we go to the chapel, and there these poinsettias are. And if you poke the little foil, it was like a water balloon. He's just dumping water in them. I said, and at this point, I find this comical. Uh, we'll end JP him later. But I, right now, we're just going to, this is comical. I said, I said, RP, feel the leaves here. Don't they feel like plastic to you? He goes, oh, I just thought they were really dry. <laughs> and so I gave him more water. 
No matter what he thought of the poinsettias, no matter how he felt the poinsettias, no matter what he knew or thought he knew about the poinsettias, they were always fake. Nothing made them real. They were fake. That's the reality. He could have prayed they'd be real. He could have put more and more water in and hoped that they'll blossom and bloom one day. But they were fake. That was a set, unchanging reality. No matter what we do, sometimes we think, well, if I feel this way or I think this way. No, objective truth is exactly that. It's objective. There's nothing you can do to change it. Now, suppose you were to go into one of your child's classrooms and you saw this on the chalkboard. Now, you see this on the chalkboard. What is your first thought? I know what you're thinking, uh, our schools today. They're just teaching math is new math and uh, common core math and just make up math. Whatever you want is math is math. Why does this math problem here on this chalkboard, blackboard, why does that rub you the wrong way? Because it's not true. It's not true. You look at that and you roll your eyes. Some of you might even say, okay, that's silly. It's not true. And you're not going to entertain it. You're not even going to sit there. Maybe some of you are. You're sitting there. You're thinking, okay, two of what? Two of plus two of something. I might be able to get five. The reality is you're not going to get five. Two plus two is four. You know, this is actually a very famous math problem. In 1945, during the, well, actually during the Second World War, and doing some propaganda work for the British Broadcasting Corporation, which we know as BBC, a man by the name of George Orwell applied the logic of 2 plus 2 equals 5 to counter the reality-denying psychology of Nazi propaganda, which he addressed in an essay that he wrote called Looking Back on the Spanish War. He says this. This is what he says in his essay. Nazi theory, indeed, specifically denies that such a thing as truth exists. There is, for instance, no such thing as science. There is only German science, Jewish science, etc. The implied objective of this line of thought is a nightmare world in which the leader or some ruling clique controls not only the future but the past. If the leader says of such, a, such an event, it never happened, well, then it never happened. If he says that two and two are five, well, then two and two are five. This prospect frightens me much more than bombs. And after our experiences of the last few years, that, the, blitz of, the British Blitz of 1944-41, that is not a frivolous statement. Orwell goes on in addressing the Nazi anti-electionalism. Orwell references uh, Hermann Goering's hyperbolic praise of Adolf Hitler. Here's what Goering said. If the Fuhrer wants it, two and two makes five, the Fuhrer gets it. In the political novel 1984, concerning the party's philosophy of government for Oceania, or will he says this, in the end, the party would announce that two and two made five, and you would have to believe it. It was inevitable that they should make that claim sooner or later. The logic of their position had demanded it. Not merely the validity of experience, but the very existence of external reality was tacitly denied by their philosophy. The heresy of heresies was common sense, and what was terrifying was not that they would kill you for thinking otherwise, but that they might be right. For after all, how do we know that two and two make four? 
or that the force of gravity works, or that the past is unchangeable. If both the past and the external world exist only in the mind, and if the mind itself is controllable, what then? The world will want to tell you two plus two equals five, but here's why it bothers you, because you know there's an objective truth, there's an objective standard that two plus two equals four. And what I want to challenge you is to say, hey, I, as much as 2 plus 2 equals 4, I want you to see in the verse that follows this where he says, be ye holy for I am holy. That's as an objective as a truth. And we must tether ourselves to it. Peter recognizes that his readers live in a crazy and deceitful world. He said as much when he acknowledged that they have many trials and their faith is being tried like gold in a fire. So he says you need to prepare your mind for action. Not physical, not emotional, but rigorous thinking. Real quickly, I'll be done. Can I give you a practical way to do this? Consider this maxim. All truth is God's truth. We said it last week. Now, we can look at a math problem like this and we can shake our heads and say, that's our culture. But if we're prudent, we will embrace the tension and find opportunity even in the mayhem. Remember last week I mentioned a paradox? I want to talk real quick about it again. An, an excellent example of this, though, of finding opportunity in the mayhem comes to us from the Apostle Paul in his sermon on Mars Hill. And to look at this, I want to go back to one of our classical paradoxes. Remember Epimenides' paradox? It was the liar paradox. It is named for Epimenides, a semi-mythical uh, guy from Crete, a philosopher who wrote a poem called Critica. In the poem, the main character Minos says this about Zeus. This is what the poem says about Zeus. And you know Zeus, the god Zeus. Here's what he says. They fashioned a tomb for you, holy and high one. Cretans always liars, evil beasts, idle bellies. But you are not dead. You live and abide forever. For in you, we live and move and have our being. That's the poem. What Minos was saying was that Zeus needed a tomb because he was mortal. Minos responds to this action by the Cretans by saying, Cretans are liars to claim Zeus's mortality. The paradox is, the poem, is that the poem is written by a Cretan, and the Cretan claims that Cretans are liars. Paul jumps on this paradox in Titus chapter 1, verse 12. In his, second, in his letter to Titus, he says this about the Cretans. Once a, one of themselves, even a prophet of their own, said, the Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. Paul, you know what he was doing? He was quoting almost verbatim Epimenides' poem, Credica. But did you catch the second quote Paul used from this poem? He actually quotes the last line of the poem in Acts 17, 28. On Mars Hill, Paul says this, For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own prophets have said. Again, Paul's quoting Epimenides, the Cretan, the Cretan who said all Cretans are liars. You see the paradox? If all Cretans are liars, then how can we trust Epimenides, a Cretan, to tell the truth when he says that they're all liars? But the actual paradox is not important as the technique that Paul used on Mars Hill. This is an example of a technique Paul used throughout his entire message. He used what was known to them and parsed the truth from it. 
Francis Schaeffer said this in his book, Whatever Happened to the Human Race? He said this, Jesus is Lord not just in religious things, not just in cultural things such as art and music, but he is Lord in our intellectual lives and in business and in our attitude toward the devaluation of people's human, humanness in our culture. What Schaeffer was saying was Jesus or the truth can be found in everything. What was Paul, what Paul was saying when he, what was, that was what Paul was saying when he said, for in him we live and move and have our being. He was taking something the Greeks knew about, of one of their own prophets, and he said, but I'm going to turn it and I'm going to tell you the truth. This is the shift in perspective that we talked about last week that I hope we'll all drive for, even in, in a secular, biblically illiterate world. I pray that we'll find the common grace of God's truth that are known by the things that are made. You see, objective truth, regardless of the onslaught of our, onslaught of our culture, no matter what society says, truth will never change. No matter how you feel, truth will never change. I don't know if you've had the opportunity but last night and the night before, I was able to log into the portal there at the Wilds and listen to Jim Shetler preach. Your, if you have teens that are down at the Wilds, your teens heard last night this truth preached to them that no matter how you feel, truth will not change. No matter what you know, truth will never change. I know there's danger here in emphasizing our thinking faculty this evening. To even imagine that we can completely, through rational thought, comprehend our God is foolish. His ways are not our ways, neither are his thoughts our thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are his ways higher than our ways. We need to get on the same page as God. Gird up the loins of your mind. Be ready for action. Notice that the first thing Peter says after girding up the loins of your mind is to be sober. Another metaphor. There's a contrast here between being ready for action, but also being sober, being reserved. We are to be wise as serpents, ready for action, and harmless as a dove's, sober. But here it is, folks. This is why you gird up the loins of your mind. If you get nothing else this evening, please take this with you. You gird up the loins of your mind so that you can be tethered to truth and the first objective truth that we attach ourselves to, the truth that anchors us through the turbulent chaos of this world, the truth is this. Verse 15, God is holy. You attach yourself to that. It's as true as 2 plus 2 equals four. But attach yourself to that. Tether yourself to that. And then the rest of First Peter begins to flow. And, dare I, dare I say it, almost comes naturally because we are to be holy as he is holy. Dear Heavenly Father, help us to take our minds to be ready for action. I pray that we would gird them up to be ready to work, ready to think, so that we can go out into the chaotic world around us. And like 
Paul, we can even see things where there's truth and we can parse that out and we can point people to you. Father, I pray that we would be faithful in the way we think and that we would tether ourselves to objective truth. And I didn't say it in the message, but ultimately what we're tethering ourselves to is the word of God. Keep us grounded in it and on it, for it will not change, even though the world around us crumbles. Be with us as we leave here. Watch over us. Give us safety as we go to our homes. But may we think on these things. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God, or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, you can visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened, and we want to encourage you to share this message with others. May the truth of God's word be your guide as you strive to follow Christ and make him known to others.